Acts 27. This is, uh, this morning, obedience in the storm. Paul has had many storms in his life, both literal and figurative. He's he, uh, in 1st in or 2nd Corinthians, he hints at the fact that this was not his first shipwreck, but it was very likely his worst. And we get to follow along in this journey, and uh, we don't have any more detailed uh, trip journal in Acts than this one. I mean, it's kind of amazing that Luke took up an entire chapter, at least for what, is, uh, what for us is a chapter, to tell this uh, shipwreck journey, but he did, and uh, he, we know the Holy Spirit told him to, and there's a reason why, and we're going to get to some of that this morning. So, in this chapter, Paul is finally headed to Rome. Uh, he knew he must go to Rome, chapter, 29, uh, chapter 19, verse 21, he knew that, He's, those words came out of his mouth, I must go to Rome. Again, there's that, that must, that uh, Greek verb of divine necessity. This was God saying, you must, he must do something. But this storm, while being very real, very literal, it is also a metaphor for the past three-ish years of Paul's life. Jerusalem was a storm. Jerusalem was a mess. When we look at the first 10 verses of chapter 28 next week, we're going to see miracles. Finally, for the first time in three years of Paul's ministry, there will be some miracles done. It, it's, Jerusalem has just been one mess after the other, and this storm is a uh, two, three-week microcosm of the three years that Paul spent in Jerusalem. Uh, at the beginning of the story, uh, early on in the story, there's going to be advice not taken. Uh, does that sound familiar for, from Paul's life? We're going to look at that. Uh, the, there's going to be problem after worsening problem. It's just going to escalate as the storm, uh, as the trip goes on. And then in the middle-ish, or the last two-thirds, we get a promise from God. Just kind of a mirror image of what went on in Jerusalem. But even with that promise, at the end of the story, this story, this part of the story, Paul's going to have to choose whom or what he will trust. And the question we answer this morning is, will he finally choose God? Well, out in the middle of the Mediterranean, it's not going to do any good to appeal to Caesar. He is stuck, so to speak. And if we've read Acts before, we know how he chooses. But let's pretend we don't know. So they start this journey from Caesarea. They get on this ship. Uh, and we start with, right off the bat, or at least very quickly, a difficult beginning. We see this in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 27. If you don't have a copy of scripture, please feel free to use one of the ones in front of you, the red Bible's there in front of you, and uh, if you want it, take it home. Uh, that can be your copy of God's word. Chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius, 
of the Imperial Regiment. When we had boarded a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Starts out, everything's okay at the moment, no, no big deal, although we learn in a few minutes, in a, few, a couple of a few seconds of Scripture, we learned they started very late. They started somewhere around probably the end of September on this journey. That may not mean much to us who aren't seafarers in the first century on the Mediterranean Sea, but for them, it was a perilous start to begin with. The, the shipping lanes uh, of the Mediterranean were completely closed from November to March because the storms were so bad. You couldn't sail on the Mediterranean those months. Nobody tried it. They just knew better. The storms were bad, and the winds didn't blow the direction you need them to blow. So you just didn't do that. So already they're getting this late start, and uh, so it's not a great beginning to begin with, even though in our 20th, 21st century minds, we don't quite see that. Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. So Paul gets freedom now, or some freedom to move about. I'm sure he had a guard. But he gets to go into Sidon and see uh, these uh, folks that were probably churches formed as a result of Stephen's persecution. As they moved north uh, after Stephen was martyred, they uh, started these churches. He gets this freedom because... He's a Roman citizen. Uh, he gets this freedom probably because he was a nice guy, and, and, and the guard, Julius, knew that. He get this, probably gets this freedom because everybody knows he's innocent. He's going to appeal to Caesar, but every step along the way of the trial, he has been uh, proven and even stated that he was innocent. And so... Uh, they leave Sidon the next day, verse 4, when we had put out to sea. From there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, if you look at your map, you can see when they leave uh, the, uh, uh, just north of Caesarea, you can see where they stop at Sidon. And what they should have done, looking at your map, was they should have turned immediately left and gone south of the island of Cyprus and gone across the Mediterranean that direction. But the winds were against them. They couldn't do that. So they had to sail up the coast some more and turn left going north of Cyprus. They're trying to hide behind the continent so the winds aren't as bad, uh, are, are more favorable to them. That's what they're doing. And it is with difficulty, it says. And Luke is going to use that phrase and that word with difficulty, with difficulty, with difficulty, over and over and over. And that is what they're going to experience, but at this point they have no idea how much difficulty they're going to have. Verse 5, after sailing through the open sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reach Myra in Lycia. There the centurions found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. I'm no seafarer, but I read some folks who know more about this than I do. These ships were not made for storms. They were made for perfect weather. They had one huge sail. 
They could not sail into the wind. And let me tell you, go to YouTube and learn how ships sail into the wind. It's physics and stuff. Um, some math is in there, so I'm not going to try to explain it. But oh my goodness, they, they, you can't sail directly into the wind, but if the wind is coming at you at an angle, you can sail straight. You can sail forward into that wind. And you have to go back and forth, zigzag, it's called tacking. You can do it. I had no idea. That's crazy to me. Well, Alexandrian grain ships could not. So now they're on a ship that is not suitable for the bad weather at all, which they're going to find out the hard way. Verse 7, sailing slowly for many days with difficulty, right? We arrived off Canidus. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, they didn't even get to go to harbor, we sailed along the south side of Crete, and there you can see your, uh, on your map, they uh, got in that ship at uh, Mysia, and then they were going to go on up the coast and couldn't, and they end up down there at the uh, island of Crete off Salome, uh, Salmoni, that was the uh, port that they went into. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. And you see uh, there the little curve at the bottom of Crete where they ended up there. The name of the port was Fair Havens. All right? Already, this, this trip is a mess. As a matter of fact, one commentator, the way he described it was kind of like uh, the Jaws music. You remember the... Da, 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 da. John Williams was brilliant in that music. Uh, you, you, you get this, this foreboding two notes, and, and, and the closer you get to the, 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 the attack, in this case of the shark, the, the music gets faster and more rapid, and then it's boom, and it hits, and it's oh goodness, and... And, and that's, that's kind of the way Luke wrote this. It is brilliant seafaring narrative. And, and, and so we, we, you get to Fairhaven, and it's with still more difficulty. Dun, dun, dun. We sailed through the, uh, along the coast and came to a place called Fairhavens. Sounds nice, right? Fairhavens. Well, even as the music intensifies... Even as those notes get closer together and, and, you, and you hear the crash coming, you, you, hear the, the, you feel the emotional surge that that music is intended to, to stir up in you, we have to understand something. We have to know something from Scripture that the end is sure. What God had intended was going to happen. Chapter 19, verse 21, you must go to Rome. Chapter 23, verse 11, you must go to Rome. It's a certainty. So while the music intensifies and, and makes us nervous and gives us this horrible expectation, the end is sure. And the trip is only achieved with difficulty. Verse 9, we see some advice not taken. This, this should have been... Paul should have gone, oh yeah, I totally get this, when, when it happened. Read with me, verse 9. By now much time had passed, and the voyage was already dangerous. 
Since the Day of Atonement was already over, Paul gave his advice. Day of Atonement tells us when they're traveling. That would have been sometime the 1st of October, probably October 4th or 5th, uh, based on the year they think that Paul was traveling. So that's why we know they're very late in the year, and the shipping lanes are about to close. It is a horrible time to try to travel. Paul gave his advice first in and told them, Men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. And since the harbor, Fair Havens, where they were, uh, was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete, facing the southwest and northwest, and to winter there. So, we're in early October. Uh, Phoenix is really only about a couple of three hours sail from Fair Havens. That's how close they are to their destination, their desired destination of rest, comfort, safety, and security. Paul speaks up, though. Pharisees, part of... Uh, 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 being a Pharisee was not nautical training. Kind of like in seminary, they didn't teach me math. In Pharisee school, they didn't teach him how to sail. So Paul is not the expert on the ship, but Paul has done some traveling. Paul uh, has spent some time on the ship, and he knows some things about it. Now notice, this is not Holy Spirit given. Luke doesn't tell us anything about the Holy Spirit speaking to Paul, and that's good because Paul is actually wrong on one of the points when he says if we go on, there will be loss of life. He was wrong. This wasn't a prophecy. This was Paul giving a warning, giving advice. Paul should have heard, echoed in his ears, those people along the way from Ephesus to Jerusalem that kept telling him, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be put in chains. You're going to jail. Hardship in Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem by the Holy Spirit. We're telling you, don't go to Jerusalem. He should have heard those echoes. And this is that metaphor. This, uh, it's not foreshadowing. It's kind of past shadowing of what Paul has done in Jerusalem. He should have caught that. Not sure that he did. But so he gives them the advice, and they don't take the advice. The ship's captain, the owner of the ship, they're the seafaring folk. They're the ones that know what to do, and they head on. Verse 13, when the storm comes, when a gentle south wind sprang up, that's hope. South wind, look at your map. That's a, a wind coming from the south blowing toward the harbor at Fair Havens. They're thinking, that's great. We can cut out of Fair Havens. Phoenix was northwest of uh, uh, Fair Havens. This is perfect. We will get out of here. We'll be in Phoenix for two hour, in two to three hours, and we will winter, spend three months at Phoenix. That's the plan. Uh, they thought they achieved their purpose, verse 13. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But before long, a fierce wind called the Northeaster. We have nor'easters. Usually it happens in the north. Uh, we don't care too much about them. Um, 
they had a name for this, and I didn't write down the name in Greek, but it was, it was like they named this kind of storm, it was so common, they knew what it was, and that's what came down. It rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Cauda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. Let me tell you what the skiff was. They kept a little lifeboat off the back of the main ship. It was tied to the stern, the back of the ship, and it floated and it pulled along behind them. Uh, they, it wasn't like the ships today where they're uh, uh, drawn up on the side and they're sitting there. Their lifeboat was in the back, but it would fill up with water in a storm. So they barely are able to get that skiff onto the, the ship, dump it out, pull it up, and protect it so that it doesn't cause a problem later on. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. I want you to see how bad these sailors know it's going to be. When it talks about girding the ship, uh, let's pretend this is the front of the ship. They would get guys on either side walking along the, the, the starboard and the port side of the ship, and they would put ropes over the front. The, the ship's much bigger. It wasn't just one person, and it was huge ropes. And they would put them over the front of the ship, the bow of the ship, and they would let them out, and they would drag them along until they got them to the center of the ship. Then they would tie them up. They'd, they'd use a winch. They'd tighten it up. They are literally tying the boat together because this ship is not made for the storm. The storm will destroy this ship. But just in case, they've got these ropes they're going to tie the ship up with so it doesn't come apart in the storm. All right? Uh, they, let's see, middle of 17. Fearing they would run aground on, uh, run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way, they were driven along. What's Sirtis? Sirtis, if you look at your uh, map uh, just north of where it says Africa, and uh, Cyrenaica. Out in the Mediterranean, it's not on the map, but out in the Mediterranean, about uh, an inch up, there was this huge, and I'm talking huge like uh, the size of a small country, sandbar that you really couldn't see until you were already on it. But ships would get stuck there all the time. It was a ship graveyard. And if it got stuck there in a storm, it's way too far from land, uh, the, the storm would beat up the ship, everybody would die, guaranteed. So they don't want to go, they don't want to float that far south. That's their concern, is that they're going to end up that far south. So they're trying to get away from that. So they lower this drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along, verse 18. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. They might as well have been throwing cash over the side of the boat. Folks, I'm telling you all of this to let you know how bad this situation is. You don't throw the cargo until you have to, because that's money. If the owner of the ship is saying, I no longer care about earning cash, I want to li live, you know it's a bad situation. So they're throwing the cargo the next day, verse 19. On the third day, they throw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now they're throwing stuff that helps them run the ship. They ain't worried about the cargo anymore. Now they're throwing ropes and hooks and, and, and extra winches. And what can we do to make this boat lighter 
so that it doesn't sink so far in the water so that the waves don't come over the side. Verse 20, for many days, we learned that it was 14, for many days neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. Get the picture of what it's like on this boat. There is no hope. There's no hope for saving. They are in as far as they know, and we're probably somewhere uh, toward the end of that middle, uh, that, that line that squiggles across the Mediterranean, about to land on the island of Malta. They don't know that where they are. They think they're down closer to Africa. They don't have a clue. They know there is no way this storm is going to end well for them. There's no way out of this. They've, they've thrown off extra sails. They've thrown off extra masts. They've uh, thrown as much as they can away to try to survive. And now they probably won't even survive. There is not just a metaphor for Paul in Jerusalem. This is a metaphor for us. The really big storms of life are rarely expected. Even when difficulty precedes them. They, they saw all the problems coming. They, they saw the, 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 the problems moving up the coast, and they had to go north of uh, Cyprus instead of south of Cyprus. And, and over and over, they saw these difficulties, but they all seemed manageable. They all seemed uh, 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 overcomable. That's not a word. Anyway, it seemed they could overcome those things. Okay, we got past... We made it, and then suddenly, boom, the big storm, the one that'll kill you, the one that'll ruin you, the one in which you have no hope, suddenly shows up. And it's at that point, just like with them and the, 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 the tack that they were throwing off, the tackle that they were throwing off, the cargo they were throwing off, all the things that would help them overcome the storm are worthless now. They are not overcoming the storm at all anymore. So all those trappings of help and self-sufficiency gradually get thrown off. In life, we gradually throw off those things that we think could help us through the storm. Those things that we are going to use to get us through. Those things that we say, well, this will get me through this. This is what I need. This is who is going to help me. I will appeal to Caesar. I will appeal to whatever. I will appeal to my own strength. And slowly but surely, the storm forces us to throw all of those things off. And we're at a place where all we can say is that there's no hope. There's nothing that can be done. This is going to end it. Then Jesus shows up, right? I mean, if it were a movie, uh, one commentator I read said, this would have been a great Cecil B. DeMille movie with Charlton Heston playing Paul here. This, this, this would have been the, the, uh, the climax, the, the, the point where, oh, 
Savior. It's fixed. It's going to be okay. And we would have gone through the storm with them. But we wouldn't have to see the movie because real life has done it to most of us already. And Jesus says, have courage. How many times have we read that? Just in Acts. Not, not all of Scripture, just in Acts. Have courage. Verses 21 through 26, and those are going to be on the screen for you because this is the meat of the message this morning. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Paul, maybe not the time for an I told you so, but it, it, it bolsters what he's going to say next, though. So we'll give him a pass on it. Verse 22. Now I urge you to take courage. Take courage. Because there will be no loss of any of our lives, but only of the ship. For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we have to run aground on some island. Have courage. This should be echoes for us, y'all. Just like Jesus had said they were crossing to the other side and they got into a storm and they had to wake him up. Just like he said, hey, y'all go to the other side and I'll meet you. And they got into a storm and he walks on the sea to them and calms the storm for them. Just like God had told Abraham that he would have a son by Sarah, and Abraham wanted it nine months later, and he got it 25 years later. Just like Jesus had told Paul, in, uh, God had told Paul in 1921, or rather Paul knew in 1921 that he would go to Rome, just like Jesus had stood by Paul and told him again in 2311 that he must, he would go to Rome, just like in every one of those circumstances, just like in every one of our circumstances of a storm, Jesus stands beside us and he says, have courage. Easier said than done, Jesus. But he knows that. He knows F.B. Meyer, uh, a Baptist pastor and evangelist in England in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was great friends with D.L. Moody. He said this, If I am told that I am to take a journey that is a dangerous trip, every jolt along the way will remind me that I'm on the right road. Let me say that again, a little louder for the folks in the back. If I am told that I am to take a journey that is a dangerous trip, every jolt along the way will remind me that I am on the right road. The storm of the believer's life is merely a reminder that we are on the right road. You like that, do you? 
I like it too. And it's okay. It is okay to not understand the storm. It is okay to rail against the storm. But always, always know. I'm getting ahead of myself. Hold on. We see four things right here in the meat of this passage. We see first, courage through God's presence. How can we have courage, Michael? How could Paul have courage, Michael? We have courage through God's presence. Chapter, uh, verse 23. For last night, an angel of God stood by me. God was right there. Of course, it was an angel of God. Was it Jesus himself? Was it a, a Christophany? Was it a Theophany? Was it uh, Gabriel or, or Michael? Who knows? Doesn't matter. The point is that God was there. For last night, an angel of God stood by me. His presence never left Paul. We, unfortunately, don't get to see the angels surrounding us like Elisha's servant did. If you don't know that story, Second Kings somewhere, that story, Elisha, how are we going to stand up to the Assyrian army? And Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes so he can see your handiwork, see your deliverance. And suddenly the servant's eyes are open and he sees an army of angels around the Assyrian army. He knows God's presence. We don't get to see that. I've never seen that. But we have the promise, Hebrews 13, 5, that God never leaves us. We have courage through God's presence. For Paul, with mountains on one side and a raging sea on the other, Paul was not alone. I've never been on a cruise. I know some of y'all have. I, I have no idea. I have, I've, I've been to Hawaii, and that feels a little weird because you're out in the middle of the ocean on a dot of land this big. But I can imagine it's even worse on a boat. You look around, and there's nothing and, and, and that's where Paul was. I, he had mountains, but they weren't helpful. And once he gets out into the middle of the sea, he doesn't even have that. And in the middle of nothing is a storm. And God. Always God's presence. And we may not see or hear his presence. The silence of God in our lives is not necessarily the absence of God. As a believer, I will even take away the not necessarily. I will say in your life, believer, the silence of God is not the absence of God. Just because he's quiet does not mean he's not there. Does not mean he is not right beside you. Adrian Rogers, in a different context said something about hearing God tell him something. And then he went on to say, it wasn't an audible voice of God he heard. It was louder than that. And I love that phrase. Yeah, he didn't hear spoken words. It was a lot, lot louder. And that's how God speaks into our circumstances. When we know God's presence, like Elisha did, like the servant got to see, but Elisha already knew the other benefit is not just that we can make it through the storm, but that we can share God's presence with those who struggle to see it. Elisha got to say to his servant, you don't see what I see. Sometimes, believers, we have to say to other believers, you don't see what I see. I know this storm in your life. I know this storm in my life. But God is present. 
And right now you can't see him for the, the rain in your eyes or the tears in your eyes. You can't hear him for the howl of the wind. Let me see him and hear him for you. And that's what Paul did for the folks on board. Paul had courage through God's ownership. Continuing in verse 23, Paul said, The God I belong to. The God that I belong to. I am his slave, servant. But not just slave and servant. What husband who loves his bride would ever let anything happen to her? We, as believers, are the bride of Christ. What dad would give his son a stone when he asks for bread or a snake when he asks for a fish. Jesus said those words. We are his sheep. And the shepherd cares for the sheep, loves the sheep, protects the sheep. These are the images we have of God. We have an owner of us that is in control of everything we go through and never leaves our side. Does that mean we're going to avoid the storm? Well, let's ask Paul. Paul, does that mean we're going to avoid the storm? Paul says no. Paul is sailing through the heart of the storm. We may not avoid the the storm. We may not make it through the storm. You know what would have been okay in this case? If Paul had died. Now, it would have made the whole you must go to Rome thing kind of interesting. But if it had been Paul's time, then it would have been Paul's time. And we would have said the Lord had a plan that we didn't understand. We may not make it through the storm, but our confidence, our hope, our certainty is that we will be His in the storm and whatever the aftermath may hold. Paul tells them we're going to run aground on some island. And then, who knows? Except that we must, that I must, go to Rome. We are owned by God. Scripture says that as believers, we are bought with a price. That price is the blood of Jesus. That is what bought us. Do you think God is going to let his children drift in a storm without his presence when he paid such a high price to, be, to make us his? I'm going to leave my children? No. Paul would say, anathema, may it never be. Never will God leave those whom he owns. Paul could have courage through service. Paul could have courage because he says in verse 23, the God I serve. Paul had a calling on his life. Paul knew his calling on his life. And nothing would thwart the call of God on Paul's life, including Paul. Paul could not mess up his own calling. Paul could not outwork God, could not work around God, could not foil God's plans. One way of saying this is that you can't die until God is done with you. Now, that's an interesting way to put it, and uh, maybe there's a more theologically uh, accurate way, and and maybe a more theologically accurate way would be to say our obedience in the mission guarantees the success of the mission. 
put that on Facebook last night. It, our obedience in the mission guarantees the success of the mission. If we are doing what we are supposed to do as relates to the mission, the calling of God, then we will be successful in the mission. What does success, what does success look like? I don't know. But I've told you before, and I will continue to tell you, that success is obedience. That's a, sex, a, a successful believer. Not whatever you think the end goal might be. But obedience. Do you want to be a successful Christian? Obey God. And you will be. That's it. That's all you have to do. You don't have to witness to so many people. You don't have to understand all of Scripture. You don't have to uh, grow a church. You don't have to do anything other than be obedient. And you then will be a success. I guarantee you. I promise you, because success is doing what you're told. We know of another guy on the sea in a storm, probably kind of around this area, a guy by the name of Jonah. We looked at him in his book in 2016 and 2017 on Sunday nights, and then moved to Wednesday nights. Jonah couldn't have such trust in the storm on this same sea, this same Mediterranean. Jonah did not have the trust that Paul had. Jonah says, throw me over. It's my fault. Get rid of me. Paul says, we're good. God's here. It's a total different understanding. Here, Paul is the better Jonah. Jesus is the ultimate Jonah in the belly, in the grave three days and brings salvation. But Paul here is the, the better Jonah. We are his. We are doing his will we are in his service and the center of god's will is the safest place in any storm how bad is life are you in god's will then who cares how bad life is you are safest where god tells you to be no matter the storm that swirls around you center of God's will is the safest place in any storm. Paul, how can you have courage? He had courage through trust. The last point. In verse 25, he says, I believe God. Folks, that's what it comes down to. I believe God. I don't understand. I don't have answers. I don't have fixes. I've thrown off all the tackle. I've thrown off the cargo, the whole reason I thought we were making this trip to begin with. I've thrown it all off. I have no hope anymore. But what it boils down to for me is I trust God. Where's your trust? Is your trust in Caesar or some form of Caesar? Is your trust in you, in your ability to use that tackle? No, we got to keep that because that's our only hope. That's our only option. That's my fallback if God doesn't show up. How many of you have fallbacks in case God doesn't show up? Don't raise your hand. We know, Paul will write in Romans, we know that all things work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Go back up to point three, service. Courage through service. If we are called according to his purpose, then the storm is just part of his plan. He's just using the storm to get us ready. Notice what that verse does not say. We think that all things work together. We wish 
that all things work together. We hope that all things work together. No, we know that all things work together. We don't think. We know. Because we trust. And if we put our trust in anything but God, it is idolatry. It's not courage, and it's not obedience. Have courage, because your trust is in the tackle on the boat? No. Because your trust is in the cargo you think that's going to make you money? No. Have courage, because you trust in me. Idolatry, trusting in something besides God, is not courage, nor is it obedience. Obedience. And then the last half of the chapter, we see the promise fulfilled, beginning in, chapter, in verse 27. The 14th night came. They're still drifting. They're way over to the left of your map. They're very close uh, to, to Malta. The Adriatic Sea is that, uh, actually not the part way up there on your map. It came on down to uh, be, be, uh, between uh, Achaia and Sicily. That's where they were floating, that part of the Mediterranean. And they begin to think they're approaching land. They hear the breakers in the night. You know, the waves crashing against the beach. They're going, doesn't make that sound in the middle of the ocean. We're close to something. They fear they're going to run against rocks, so they start throwing off the rest of the cargo. They kept a little bit of grain for ballast. Keep the ship from rocking back and forth. Keep it way in the bottom. They throw the rest of that. They get rid of the, uh, they, they, they untie the rudders. They're going to drive this thing into the beach. They end up missing the beach. They get caught on a sandbar too far out uh, for, for any good, really. And they've already gotten rid of, they'll tell us, they got rid of the, the lifeboat. Some guys are going to try to escape. Some sailors are going to try to get away, and Paul says, if they leave, they die. So the centurion says, oh, back on the ship, and they cut off the boat, and they let it float away. So they end up on this sandbar, the worst place they could be. The, the waves start hitting the stern, the flat back of that boat, and all the ropes aren't going to keep it together now. It's breaking apart, and they survive. I mean, things literally get worse. These, these men try to, to save themselves. Paul tells them in verse 33, eat, you'll feel better. Trust me. And you're going to need your strength because everybody survives. Through impossible circumstances, there is no way 276 people should have survived this trip. And even when it's almost over, yay, we're, we're, we've hit the, uh, the, the sandbar. Oh, there's the beach. We're saved. Some of the soldiers say, we need to kill the prisoners. We don't want them escaping because then they're going to kill us if they escape. So let's just kill them all and get it over with. Julius says, eh, eh, not a good idea. We're not going to do that. It'll be fine. And everybody is saved. God was faithful God is faithful. God is faithful to the obedient. Here's the beautiful thing about God. He's actually faithful to the disobedient. He redirects. He sends you through some storms sometimes. He puts you in chains. He does some things to get you back on track. He's faithful to the, to the disobedient. But look, 276 men that should have died did not because God was faithful 
to Paul's obedience. So what's your takeaway this morning, folks? I wish I could tell you because I just messed up my screen. There we go. Be obedient before the storm. Okay? For three years in Jerusalem, Paul was disobedient. Be obedient before the storm. And then maybe, just maybe, maybe the storm wouldn't have happened. But the truth is, the storm is going to come. The storm will be there, whether you cause it like Paul did in Jerusalem, or whether you don't cause it like Paul didn't on the Mediterranean. Jonah's, the storm for Jonah was there because of Jonah. The storm for Paul was there because it was the Mediterranean in October. There's nothing he could do about it. But the storm is going to come. So be obedient in the storm, whether you caused it or not. Obedience is courage. How can you have courage? By being obedient. How can you be obedient? By having courage. It's one of them there tautology things. It's more math or something. A equals A. It's the same backward and forward. Obedience is courage because God is there. God has you. Your service is the one that called you. And your trust is the, in, in the only one that can save you. How can you have courage? Because the storm for God is a tempest in a teapot. It's this little thing in his hands. Oh, that's cute. It's a cute little Mediterranean typhoon. Look at the little typhoon. That's all it was to God. Because he had it. He had it all. And that is your storm in his life. I know it doesn't feel like, oh, cute little storm in my life. No, I know. I know it's not that. And I don't want to belittle that. For God, it's, it's nothing because he's there. Maybe your storm right now is a life apart from Jesus Christ. You're experiencing the, the, the storm of brokenness. You're experiencing the storm of not knowing Jesus is your Savior. You're experiencing the storm of being outside of God's design, outside of God's plan. That plan is perfect that design he had was perfect and our sin ruins that daily sin is going against anything that's in god's plan and that going against god that sin always leads to brokenness that's always where it ends up and we could call that brokenness a storm we can call that brokenness addiction we can call that brokenness whatever you want to call it and our fixes in this case, the, the tackle that they threw over, the lifeboat that they threw away, the, the, the yard arm and the, the, the extra sails, those were things to fix the storm, and they weren't going to fix the storm. It wasn't going to fix the brokenness. The only thing that could fix their brokenness was God. The only thing that can fix our brokenness is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins, taking our punishment, he was buried, he rose three days later, proving that he had power over sin and death. And if we repent of our sins, turn from our sins and believe in him, we will be saved. And we will begin to see God's design and see God's purpose. We will begin to pursue those things and we will see the reason, maybe, for the storm. And we will see, certainly, the way out, maybe, of the storm. But if we don't see any of those things through the storm, through the brokenness, we will have a God that never leaves our side through Jesus Christ.
And that makes any storm bearable. Pray with me. Thank you, Father, that you never leave us, you never forsake us. God, that no storm is outside of your purview or bigger than your power. And God, you're going to use every storm in our lives for good, for those who love you, for us who love you, and if we are obedient to the call, to the purpose that you've placed on our lives. Lord, we thank you for your presence and your promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, how should you respond to this message? There are lots of ways you can go, and I don't know what all of them are. Maybe you need to accept Christ. Maybe obedience and baptism is your next step. Maybe there's a life change you need to make. Give up some things to lead a life of holiness, to recommit to Christ, return to him. Maybe you need to be used according to his purposes. There are things that you should be doing as a believer in your church and in your community that you're not. Maybe you need to join our church and be a part of this church family. Whatever your decision is this morning, you can share that on a connection card. You can come and talk to me or Tom. We would be happy to pray with you about that, talk to you about that. Grab one of the leaders at the end, or if you're watching online, uh, you can send us a message or comment there on Facebook. But whatever it is that you have to do, don't not do it. Call on God today. Let's stand. Let's sing. Hear him. Trust him as you do business with him today.